Good evening. This is the inaugural reinstitution of our Parsha class. Oh, it's the night Parsha class. This will go in addition to the daily podcast of our Parsha Punch, which is only a few minutes every day after Shachris. By the way, do either one of you ever hear those podcasts? I have, yeah. You have? That's good. Okay. Uh, okay. Do you know what podcasts yes. are, Abraham? Okay, just checking. We're saying what you I didn't know. My kids taught me. <laughs> Don't feel bad. My kids taught me. I'm not making fun of you. I'm making fun of me. <laughs> anyway, so uh, this class will go a little bit longer, obviously, than our regular, our regular Parsha Punch, as we're going to try to analyze the Parsha as a whole and get maybe deeper into at least one detail of the Parsha. So, if we had to think about what is the overall theme of this week's Parsha, what would you say it is? The fight between Yaakov and... And Esau. Absolutely. And the angel of Esau. Well, that's, that's really a detail. Right, right. That's really a detail. The conflict between Yaakov and Esav is the theme of this week's Torah portion. In fact, right, um, when Rivka has the twins in her womb two parshas ago, and she goes to Yeshiva of Shem Ever and says, what am I supposed to do with this? This is something crazy. I go to one place that when I walk past the Yeshiva of Shem Ever, the baby's trying to get out. When I walk past the house of idolatry, the baby's trying to get out, right? So she goes to Shem Ver and says, what's going on? What kind, of, me, what kind of wacky kid is this that he wants to do both Avodah Zarah and study Torah? And what is the answer? They tell, they tell her, there's two nations that are actually in your womb. And two incredibly uh, um, sovereignties, kingdoms, will, will depart from your loins, from your, from your womb. Then what do they ta- tell her? They're always going to be trying to climb on top of each other. Should we go for the yeah. English translation? Okay. Um, here we are. He says, in, uh, The ancestors of two esteemed individuals are in your womb. Furthermore, two kingdoms will separate from your innards, one to wickedness, one to innocence. One kingdom will always be mightier than the other kingdom. For when one rises, the other will fall. That's, that's in the translation. That's in the translation with some parentheses, but that's the translation of those three words. He translates, one kingdom will always become mightier than the other kingdom, for when one rises, the other will fall, and the elder son will serve the younger son. Okay. Later, yeah, when Yitzchak blesses Yaakov, and then Esau comes back, Right? Esau comes back, and he says, what do you mean, where's my blessings? He says, I already gave it away to your brother. 
He says, you want to bring more blessings? You get all your blessings you gave to him? So, here in 186, 187, verse 40, um, Yitzchak blesses Yitzchak, uh, Esav, and says, you will live by the sword, right top of the page there, you But when you grieve about the blessings he took because the Jewish people have transgressed the Torah, then you will break his yoke off your neck. And this is history. Right there. And so Yaakov is keenly aware that this is what happened. He obviously knows what Shem and Aver told their mother when she was pregnant. And he's also aware of what Yitzchak said to Esau when he, was, when, he, when he insisted on getting some sort of a blessing. Now Yaakov has run away, right? That's what happens next. We have all of last week's Torah portion. And Yaakov realizes that the reason why, why is it so important? Why does my power as Yaakov depend on dominating Esau? Why? And why does Esau's power depend on my downfall? Why can't we just live separate lives? Why does it have to be so intertwined? Okay. So during the 20 years of last week's Torah portion, when Yaakov finds himself by Lavan, he figures that out. And he understands, basically, that there's incredibly intense light that exists specifically in Gevura of Klippa, which is what Esav represents. Severity of the dark side, the place you see it most, you know where we see it, where would we see that revelation? Do you remember? Hoshana Rabbah. The day before Shmini had said that some Torah, it's a custom to take five branches of willow, right? You bang them on the floor, hang it over there from the Aron Kodesh. There's a Yehiratzon, you say afterwards, that explains what the custom is. We, we make a prayer, may it be your will. And it explains what, what you just did. The five branches represent the five severities, the five levels of Givurah that are mired in darkness. And the process that we're going through, the tshuva that we do, Sweetens the severities. That's the term used. Hamtakat hagurot, the sweetening of these severities, and that is what we mean. We say it's another term we use, kabbalistic, for coming of Mashiach. And that's what we do in Ashana Rabbah, and that's what Yaakov now understands he's supposed to achieve. So first he gets to see it. It's like um, a guy who's working himself up into the major leagues. Right? So he's a very good hitter in Little League. And he does really good in Little League. But now all of a sudden he's playing either high school ball or college ball, or maybe he even got drafted from college into uh, uh, the minor leagues. Now he goes to the minor leagues. He has to first take on the single A pitchers, double A pitchers, triple A pitchers before he can get to the majors. He's got to get used to it. 
because this is not the same as the pitchers in little leagues. This is like real pitching, right? Once he accomplishes, now AAA ball players are pretty good. They're not good enough to be major league ball players, but they're pretty good ball players, and eventually they wind up in the major leagues. So you really can feast, so to speak, on the trip. If you can really feast on a AAA pitching as a hitter, you have a good chance of getting into the major leagues. Yaakov understands Lavan is a triple-A team. It's a good warm-up. But the majors, that's Esav. And now, all of a sudden, on his way back to meet Esav, his entire life now makes sense. Because he's been at odds with Esav from day one. And you can imagine the personality, especially with Yaakov representing Tiferet. So leave me alone. You want to be who you want to be, be who you want to be. Leave me alone. I want to go sit and learn. Why are you bothering me? Did I tell you stop murdering people, stop raping, stop stealing people's wives? No. Do I lecture you? I don't say anything to you. We don't talk to each other. Because we live completely different lives, you and I. How about you just leave me alone? And for some crazy reason, for the first 63 years of his life, he can't get Esau to leave him alone. And even on some level, Yaakov looks at that and goes, I don't get it. I don't get him looking for trouble. I'm not looking for trouble. Because he cheated the way his... The That's why he didn't want to take the blessings because he does not look up in trouble. Every step of the way. I'm not looking for trouble. He still can't figure out why this is Asov seems to keep gravitating to him. You know, it's that bully that you're trying to keep away from him. And you're granted, okay, you want to be the bully, be the bully. Okay, okay, so just leave me alone. I'll hide in the corner. Why do you have to keep bullying me? I'm not trying to convince you. Think he just realized it. So now when he, I mean, he's always had an intuition, I'm saying, that there's something here. He's always understood that. He must have known it from the beginning. Oh, for sure he, he did. But he didn't even person. begin to really fathom what it really meant until he comes to Lavan. Because until he comes to Lavan, he doesn't see mission in front of his eyes. You want me to give you an example? Okay? You know I don't come from a Chabad family. My brother's Chabad and my sister, but by and large, my nephews, nieces, etc., cousins, they're not Chabad, right? But everyone knows about this legend, their cousin who lives in California and is a Shliach. They all know about him. And I know that they all know about, about him, that this mythical individual, because on the rare occasion that I'm in New York for a simcha, etc., and my cousins happen to be at the simcha, they'll walk up to me, even my cousins with whom I grew up that I haven't really had contact with close to 50 years, okay? Their spouses will walk up to me at a wedding and say, in other words, they don't ask me who I am, they know who I am, they already know who I am, and they'll walk up to me and say, introduce themselves, I'm your cousin so-and-so's husband. Somebody I never met, because she was younger than me. 
So I never, I never met her husband. I was already here in California when she got married. I married to your cousin. Oh, nice to meet you. And you could see his look on his face. I feel bad for the guy because he has this look on his face like, whew, I met the celebrity. Uh, dude, you don't know me. But why bust this bubble, right? Okay? So you have this thing in intuition. These people have this, this concept of what it means, for instance, to be a Chabadnik out in the world. But the next thing that happens, you know what the next thing that happens? I don't get to eat at these simchas. You know why? They all gather around. They want to hear stories. They all want to hear stories. Because when you're sitting in Brooklyn, and I'm not knocking, okay, somebody's listening, I'm not knocking it, just a statement of fact. When you're sitting in Brooklyn, in an extremely rich religious neighborhood, etc., 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 you can't fathom what it's like to raise a family in Brentwood. I remember my oldest niece, I hope she'll never listen to this because she'll call me and scream at me. My oldest, niece, what makes my oldest sister's oldest child, okay? There was a family simcha and a bunch of my kids were there. She didn't really know my kids. They, I mean, they knew that they existed. These, these are her cousins. But she didn't really know them. And at the Simcha, she got to meet at least three of my daughters and got to interact with them and spend time with them. She calls me three days later and she says, you know, Uncle Mark? I said, what? I mean, that wedding was amazing for me. I said, why? I got to meet your kids. These cousins that I've always yearned to get to know who they are. I said, oh, okay. She said, you know what shocked me? Listen to a word. I said, what? How normal they are. <laughs> I don't know if she assumed that if these cousins grew up in California but not in Brooklyn, right. okay, she assumed they're probably from, they're still keeping Shabbos, kosher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but uh, multiple piercings, maybe a crazy haircut, maybe some funny, funky colors in her hair. Etc. And they're normal. She said, talk to your daughters. It sounds like any other from girl from Brooklyn. I can't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't get over it. I have these cousins. And she said, it was very painful because afterwards I said, I have all these really normal, beautiful cousins living in California. I have nothing to do with them. She felt bad. Yaakov is sitting. He gets it. He knows it's something unusual. He knows intuitively that there's something about this contention that Esav is always trying to put pressure on him and always trying to drive him crazy. He knows it. But he's never really seen it with his own eyes. Because for the first 63 years, he was in yeshiva. When he wasn't in yeshiva, he was home learning with his father. Or cooking adasi. <laughs> now all of a sudden... He's finally going to get to put this into practice to see if all of his years of training meant something. And even stops off for 14 years straight in Yeshiva Shem Be'ever before he goes to Lavan even. Because he wants to make sure he's really armed. And he arrives at Lavan, and I can tell you, like somebody who came on Shlichus, who had already spent two years as a Yeshiva Bacher here, seeing what Shlichus is really like. 
And yet when I came to Brentwood, as prepared as I thought I was, I was not prepared. But remember, these are such a holy, high level... Of course. Yeah, but they, they're missing something that you and I have. You know what it is? No, our, yes, history's good. That's a good answer, but it's not the answer I was looking for. What, what do we have that they didn't have? It's Mount Sinai. Oh. So they are literally operating with one hand tied behind their back. Because until Mount Sinai, they're missing tools. Important tools, the, the most important tools. So we have more tools than they Many, many more. They're not even close. And we're not using them. Oh, well, we're getting there. Yeah. We're getting there. Okay, so what does he see at Laban? At Laban, he sees, okay, this is what the war is like. This is what it's like to interact with sparks of godliness that are mired in dirt, that it's my job to, un, to clean away all the dirt, let the sparks shine, and, and as a result, take an entire environment that is utterly antithetical to everything that is godly and holy and transform it into the holy. Wow, that's powerful stuff. Now I get it. Now I see what's going on. And by the time he finishes with AAA minor league pitching, which is love on, he says, now I'm ready for the big leagues. Now I'm ready. Bring on Asaf. I can take this guy. I can take this guy because I now know what it is I'm supposed to be doing to this guy. And that's the backdrop that is the introduction to this week's Torah portion. If you read the verses straight up, they come out sounding like Yaakov scared witness. But the truth is, Yaakov is trying to tread softly. He wants to make sure he gets this job done. Not until he meets Asa face to face does he really, really realize, I'm not meant to finish this job. Not on me. I'm actually not meant to finish this job. I'm supposed to move the job forward one very important level but it's not. But I, I'll. But I'll never be able to finish the job because I'm still missing. Outside. I'm going to be able to do all kinds of great stuff to prepare the world and to prepare Ace of it to get it all in motion so that we can get to Mount Sinai. But as long as I'm missing Mount Sinai, I will never really be able to finish this. That's what. That's what he realizes once he meets Ace face to face. Because Lavan, technically, if you can use the word technically, he does finish. He finishes Lavan off. So much so, the Maggid of Mizrich says that at the end of last week's Torah portion, when Lavan is chasing Yaakov, he goes to chase him down. Says the Maggid of Mizrich, why was he chasing him? The Maggid says, the rest, he, the rest of the sparks. You left some sparks behind. And I need to give them to you. So Lavan is utterly conquered. And that's his opening statement. Im Lavan Garti, 
So Rashi says, Garti is the same letters as Taryag, 613. So he says he's hinting to him, Im Lovan Garti v'tayag mitzvah shamarti. I may have lived with Lovan for the last 20 years, I still kept all the mitzvahs of the Torah. I didn't learn anything Rashi says at the beginning of Sukh's Pasha from his evil deeds. So the reason we know he's, he was done with his job is because he was such a taker. He, took, he, he cleaned him out. He cleaned, yeah. he cleaned him out. So now he's approaching Asaph, and he's approaching Asaph completely differently. He says, Wow, now I understand what Shame Aver told mom. When we were both in the womb. Why? Because you are the darkness that needs to be illuminated, that is ultimately my mission. All the non Jews are. From the Esau? Yes, the, the, the epitome you are. We say that Esau Edom, which is Esau, which we're going to get to, at the end of the Pasha, Edom is um, Rome, and, and the successor of Rome is the United States. Oh. Yeah. And European Yeah. But, okay, so when are we saying exactly he found this out? Is there like a seminal moment you're talking about? When he found out what? What it's all about. This whole thing with... Like I said, he's always actually known, so what is this but thing? he didn't see it until he got yeah. to Lavan. So when he gets to Lavan, during the whole process with Lavan... Right. He, he, under- he figures out while he's by Lavan that this is only triple-A ball and that the majors is going to be a So what makes you say that? Are you looking at a verse saying this? From day one, every interaction he has with Lavan, yes. Yosef is born, he says, I'm going home. In last week's parasha. Why is he going home, says Rashi? To finish the job with Esau. To finish the job with Esau. He's always known it. Always known it. Never didn't understand what it really was until he came to Lavan. Why did he want to get, okay, never mind. I was going to say, why did he want to get the firstborn so bad, knowing it's going to create all this, but, but he, knew he, he knew he deserved it. He, and he, he had knew, to have it. He but knew he had. that's who he was right. from the womb. That's mm-hmm. who he was. He couldn't change him. So now Yaakov is going to challenge Esau. Everything about his challenge of Esau, everything about his challenge of Esau, takes on all aspects of his life. And he approaches, and he, he finally gets to meet Esav face-to-face. And when he meets Esav face-to-face, first of all, his preparation, is, his preparation is, I want to be able to reach out to this guy because I know there's another thing he's come to figure out with Lavan. For the first time, he saw in an experiential way the difference between top-down and bottom-up. First time? Again, conceptually, he understood it. But when you see it in front of your eyes, it's a whole different thing.
when you actually experience it. Imagine the guy, we'll use an example from my own life, right? Uh, when I studied to be a lifeguard, I also learned a tremendous amount of first aid. Not enough to be an you know, like a ambulance guy, but I learned a lot of first aid, right? But until the first time I actually saw somebody going through some of the stuff I've learned in the book. It wasn't the same. First time I saw somebody when I was actually working as a lifeguard, struggling in the pool. Right? MS, I made it look easy. But once I had him out of the pool, the thoughts start to run through your head. What if I hadn't seen him? You know, we have a buddy system in the pool. Kids, I don't know where was his buddy. I don't know where his buddy was. I didn't notice it. There was no, he was struggling. I don't know what would have happened if he would have kept struggling. But I saw him. And it's not like he called out to me, but I saw him. Because I was intently watching the pool. So I made it look easy. It wasn't like, you know, he was never in danger, etc. But if I had not seen him, so those thoughts started to enter my head afterwards. I made it look easy. I took care of him. I guess you could say I saved his life. But the only reason you could say I saved his life is if you start to think, God forbid, what would have happened if I wouldn't have seen him in the pool. So until you actually experience, and then, once I realized that, I started to tremble. After I had already done it, it started to scare me. Oh my, what if I would have missed that? It's stupid thoughts, right? But until you actually experience it, it's only academic. I mean, in history, has Esau ever served Yaakov? Us? This has never happened yet, right? They will at the end. Have has they ever Esau served us? ever served us? Well, on the Shlomo Melech, obviously. When we have it all straight, right? He served us. So Shlomo Melech, every all the nations of the world, he was Moshe Bekipa. Shlomo Melech ruled the known world. Possibly the only time. Can we say they've served us by running the world for us to do the job? Well, I mean... Like they're going to come and say we paved the roads for these guys to do the job? <laughs> Can we say that? Can, have they served us? Or it, the, this mean, is never... We've been the so, Gemara says that Hashem been, is going to say you're liars. Yeah. But that's on us. Right? If you had that small window by Shlomo Melech, right? It was downhill after, from Shlomo Melech on. I often think about, this is really a wild thing, right? Rashi says in Bechukotai, in the Tochacha, when Hashem is telling us the rebuke of what's going to happen to us if we don't follow His ways. Yeah? So it says, I think I'm quoting the Pasuk correctly, that all, all the Shemitot that we didn't keep 
Hashem is going to collect back because we will be because the land will be desolate, empty and desolate. Rashi says that's the seventy years of the Babylonian exile corresponds to seventy shmitot that the children of Israel didn't keep. For years, I read this Rashi every year. You come to that Rashi, and then I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Seven times 70 is 490. Bayat Rishon, the first place of Migdash, stood for 410 years. So if you roughly you get in the Yovlot, because over there was different kind, it's seven times seven and then a Yovel, and then it starts again. So my numbers are a drop off. Okay? But for roughly a, almost 500 years, they weren't keeping Shemitah? What? All these great and righteous kings, all the years. But Pashtus, what's the answer to that question? The answer to that question probably is, I never saw any place that quotes, that asks this very simple question. Even though Rashi calculates it for you over there, he says, from so-and-so and on, they didn't keep Shemitah. He says when it started, he does the math. So how many years is that? He does the math. I don't remember exactly the number, it's but it's... No, it's, a, it's, it's more than 410. Oh, it's more than 410. Yeah, because every seven years is a Shemitah, and you're telling me they missed 70 Shemitahs. That's why we have 70 years of the exile, Babylonian exile. So seven times 70 means that it was 490 so years. So what date starts before Beit Even before the Beit HaMikdash. What does it mean? They were not keeping it well. Oh, we never kept it well. Exactly. We and there was did, always, we never did the job. There was always a small group of Jews who were the from ones. And then you add. I don't know that that's the answer. I'm saying, I look at that Rashi and I go like, what? Translate it. Let's take it back to here. Yeah. So Yaakov sees this in Esav. And he approaches Esav. First and foremost, by saying, look, if it says, that one nation is always going to be stronger than the other, and you're supposed to serve me, and, what's the Russian name tell this? You will grieve about the blessings because Jewish people have transgressed the Torah, then you will break off his, uh, the yoke off his neck. So he, Yaakov says, wait a second. This is a really tough thing. Because if you think that Yaakov doesn't foresee, even though all 12 of his sons are righteous, yeah? Yaakov clearly sees, notwithstanding their righteousness, every single human being has a, I guess for lack of a better word, a dark side. So Rashi says, right now I can look at my 12 sons, at that point, 11 sons, and say, okay, righteousness is perfect over here right now, but there's something in the DNA that's ultimately going to trickle down. And I don't know how that's going to play itself out. Particularly, I don't know how that's going to play when we wind up in Egypt, because Yaakov sees that. 
or we become part of Egyptian culture. I don't know how that's going to play out. Which goes into the whole Yosef story, which we'll wait for future weeks to talk about it more at length. So Yaakov looks at Esau now and says, I, it would be best if I finished it now. Who needs... I, I don't want to see what's going to happen. Let's finish it now. But he also knows from his experience with Lavan, top down is not sufficient. There's going to have to be bottom up. So he reaches out to Esau. Hoping that it's not going to be only a top-down experience, their interaction, that it'll have some, it'll have bottom-up as well. Is that why he doesn't really show him Dina? Because deep down he knows, even though he's criticized. Uh, it was it. in this morning's podcast, you yeah. know? Uh, he, he knew. To check out this morning. See, the only reason I'm not going into it, I would, yes. It completely follows along the theme, but I'm afraid somebody will want, listen to this and go, hey, just repeating what he said in the no, morning. No, no. <laughs> But yes, 100%. Yeah. Yes. So along comes Yaakov and he finally meets Esau face to face. After wrestling with Esau's angel. What is that all about? The wrestling with Esau's angel is again, that's his next step in prepping for meeting Esau and trying to transform him and finish it once and for all. Make the Laom Milom Yemots a positive experience for Esau instead of a negative experience for him. This is my ongoing joke about the Jews. Every society in history needed Jews. But they hated the Jews. And, and, and what really made them hate the Jews is when the Jews didn't want to be the Jews. They wanted to be Goyim like all the rest of them. Right. Why did they hate us for that? Why did they hate us for that? Because intuitively they know we shouldn't. That we're not doing our job. A and B. We really are better Goyim than the Goyim. <laughs> <laughs> And that drove them nuts, right? I met, I, 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 I was talking to a parent, the kids at Pali, yeah? So the, I said, the kid, big broad, yeah? I said, you're in athletics? He says, yeah. So what, what sport do you play? He says, football. Football? I said to him, what are you, switched at birth? What kind of Jewish kid plays football? Are you crazy? He said, why can't I play football? I said, we don't play football. We own the team. <laughs> so they don't like who we're better going than the Goyim. They're happy when we're better Jews than them. That they have no problem with. They're down with that. But they hate when we try to be better Goyim than them. Yaakov doesn't finish the job. He obviously doesn't finish the job. The job has to be kicked down the road. It has to be moved. There's going to have to be many, many more generations till Chabad of Brentwood, and then we'll finish it. Well, he knows that. He sees it. He sees it once he interacts with them. 
So we move through the parsha, and you wind up with the Dina story, which I don't want to focus on tonight. But most importantly, we wind up at the end of the parsha. The end of the parsha lists off because he had been promised. Um, Asav. It goes through all of Asav's generations and all of the sayer and all the things that he achieved. So then the Torah says at the end, the Elaham Lachim on page 252-253, these are the kings who ruled in Edom before there was a king for the Bnei Israel. In other words, in other words, Edom, Esau, goes through a series of sovereign moments. And only then, after he goes through a whole series of sovereign moments, can there be sovereignty amongst the Jews. And the Torah lists off all these kings. And we're going to get into the mystical right now. So the, king, the Torah lists off all these kings. These are the kings who were there before B'nai Yisrael, First, Bela, and he dies. And he gets taken over by Yovov ben Zerah. And then Yovov dies. And after him comes Chusham. And then Chusham dies. And Hadad ben Bedad takes over from him. And then Hadad dies. I'm at 254 and 255 now. Samla takes over. Samla dies. Shaul takes over. Shaul dies. Balchanan ben Achbar takes over. Then he dies. And he gets taken over. Hadar. Now, count how many kings this was. Bela is one. Right? Yovav is two. Chusham is three. Hadad is four. Samla is five. Shaul is six. Hanan ben Achbor is seven. And then you have Hadar. Eight. No, they had a Shaul too? Yeah, all these names. What are we talking about here? Yeah, but Shaul is our... He comes out first game. Okay. You know what we're talking about here? What are we talking about? Remember, who is Asa? What does he represent mystically? He represents Tohu. Everything that manifests itself in this world is darkness, is really an extraordinary, intense light. At the level of Tohu, we've talked about this in the past, at the level of Tohu, there's too much light, not enough vessel. And so we experience Shvirat HaKalim of Tohu, breaking of the vessels. They're overloaded. And if you continue with the anthropomorphism, and you break vessels, and whatever's in it spills out. It doesn't just empty. It spills out haphazardly. There's no control to where it's going to spill. And that's what's manifest darkness in this world. Because the breaking of the vessels of Taihu cause a down sprout of incredibly intense light that falls anywhere without an orderly progression. And so therefore it falls to the lowest levels possible and manifests itself as the ultimate darkness. The death, next king, death, next king, 
is a metaphor for the breaking of the vessels of Tayu. Death is like breaking the vessels. Esav represents Tayu on all his levels. The breaking of the vessels of Tayu sets in motion the capacity because once you have the breaking of the vessels of Tayu, the trickle-down allows for what we call Tikkun, the orderly worlds, starting with Atzilut. And what's the ultimate manifestation of Atzilut? Malchut. So you can't get first there has to be the breaking of the vessels of Tayu. Kingdom of the Jewish people is the orderly kingdom, that's the Amalchus of Atzilus. The next level down, where we're starting to have order in the manifestation, where there's um, discipline in being able to discern between light and darkness. And recognizing that light is something we should gravitate towards, darkness is something we should avoid. All that comes only after, only after the breaking of the vessels of time. So, even though this is many generations into the future, what's being spoken about here, Yaakov implements the final blow. He oversees the breaking of the vessels of Tayu because he's now come to this deeper insight that the interaction with that what would what do we really mean? What did they really mean when they said way back when that one nation will dominate the other? What did it really mean? It meant that we are going to be able to incorporate the incredibly intense lights of Tayu and fuse them with Tikkun, with the orderly world. That they wouldn't be mutually exclusive. That because these lights are so intense and they're so high, they have to be utterly concealed in order for us to be able to experience them. That's, no, we're going to take them and make them part of our own orderly life. And transform them. The weightlifter, the average schmo can bench press, I don't know, 100 pounds, 120 pounds, maybe, something like that, right? Almost every average schmo can do that. Along comes this guy who decided he wants to become a bodybuilder. And he's going to push it to the next level. And so he works and works and works and works. Not just to a place where at one given day he can bench press 250 or whatever. No. He wants to make it that bench pressing 250 is perfectly normal and limited. What anybody else would consider completely and totally out of proportion, he brings it to a place where the out of proportion becomes totally normal. Yaakov says, in order to do that, first we're going to have to have the breaking of the vessels. And then we'll work on those parts of light to elevate them, to infuse them with godliness, to elevate them to a place where they can handle the revelation. 
And you're getting that from what we are listing the kings. Yeah. So Chassidah says this listing of the kings, dying lives, dying lives, mm-hmm. is the breaking of the vessels of Tayyot. That's what's going on there. Mm-hmm. That's the mystical. And Yaakov sent him on his way to do that. Yeah, go, go have your experience. The reason why it's incorporated here at the end of this parasha is because that's what this whole parasha is about. Yaakov dealing with Esav. Now along comes us, because we have to give it a bottom line, right? And we're faced with a huge challenge. You know what our huge challenge is? No, it's a piece of cake. If it was such a piece of cake, we'd it's finish been, it already. It's been so easy. <laughs> right. <laughs> our huge challenge is the darkness looks so overwhelming. We can't help ourselves but question, is it realistic mm-hmm. that we can actually mm-hmm. do this? Right. It's a beautiful thought. It's not like I'm against it. Exactly. And it's not even like I'm not ready to participate. I'm ready to participate. But seriously. What the quote some people say to me, Rabbi, you've been talking about this Mashiach thing for such a long time. Maybe you need a new pitch. And human beings are just getting lazier and lazier. Oh, man. Because the, and the reason why we're getting lazier and lazier is because the stakes are higher and higher. So along comes Yaakov and says to us, no, 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 you're so close. What I saw 4,000 years ago, you're seeing the actual moment. When he tells Esau in the middle of the Parsha, Go, 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 go. Asif says, come on, walk together with you. He says, no, what are you going to slow down? You're with a military battalion on horses. I got sheep and cattle. You kidding? We can't go as fast as you. I'll go, go, it's okay. He says, okay, I'll leave you some of my people to go with you. No, 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 no. You're thinking people, it's okay. Ada asher ovo eladoni seira. Till I finally come to my master at Mount Seir. Rashi says, When? This is what Yaakov says to him. Rashi says, what? All the Mashiach brought sinners, but there's a race. The voice of the Mashiach. Rashi says, yeah. That's what it's going to be. So Yaakov sees. Is there a connection with Mount Seir and. Yeah. Mashiach, what's the connection? That's Asaph. That's you draw your. He's, when he's saying add. Until we meet at Mount. Uh huh. Can you relate that to um, that it means Mashiach? Is there a translation? Yeah, I'll read you the Rosh. I'm just wondering if Mount Seir has a connection, just in translation or something, by meaning. Here, that is first. He made a big. Let's separate. 
take over the take them and have a distance distance ourselves from together. Shloim that the lechas alat sukkas because Yaakov had no intention of actually going all the way to Mount Seir. He was only going to go as far as Sukkot. Amar, he said in Da'at Alas Tira, if this guy really wants to do something bad to me, says Rashi, Yam Tanat Bayetzli. Let him sit there and wait for me to come. He wants to find me. Fulei Alach, he never went there. Ema Sayelech. When will he go? Bimei Mashiach. Explicit Rashi. Shnemar. Al Mashiach Ba'atzi on the spot at Harisov. And he says there's a lot of medrash on this. It's an incredible experience. So Yaakov saw this, knew, saw us. And he set in motion at the end of the Pasha, the breaking of the vessels of Toyo. Don't be afraid of Toyo. The vessels are all broken, the light is dead. Don't worry, engage it. Setting us up to finish the job. It's never been more urgent. Mm. I mean, I'm sure that there have been times in history where we looked at each other and we said it's never been more urgent than right now, but wow. This has to be. This has to be about bringing Mashiach. Now you have this thought that, I'm sure you have, I'll ask anyway, you have this thought that now, at this time, it's as if Hashem, with this, is asking everyone, everyone in the world to vote about the Jews. Like he's making everyone, where are you? Yeah. But it's really, who's he really asking to vote? Us, of course. Right. And, 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 and the nations. The nations will vote how we tell them to. Not, and I don't mean that in a protocols of the elders of Zion way. Of course, I mean it in a very realistic way. The nations look to us for guidance. If we're the best Jews that we can be, they'll vote one way. It's all been laid to bear now. It's all out in front of the open. It's all out in the open. Yeah. Hashem help us to be able to finish this job once and for all. Because, like I like to say, this is no way to run an airline. And we have to once and for all, mamish, 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 end this goals. And we can only do that by. Grabbing hold of Esav, because now we have the power, we have the tools, we have the tools given to us at Mount Sinai, and thousands of years since then, and we have the tools of Chassidus, coming up with the kiss of the Shabbos, we have the final tools. Let's not let it wait another second. I was going to say something else, but I'll put it this way. Let's not let it wait another second. Let's make sure it happens. I think this is where you applaud.